right, so we're going to start just by reading through the text for the day, and um, you know, I think that'll give us some framework so that as we work our way through the sermon, we'll be able to come back and just kind of touch down where we need to. So 1 Corinthians 6, starting in uh, verse 12, I'm going to read all the way through to verse 20. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, quote, I, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. But I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are actually members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord out of 1 Corinthians 6. Now, as Dave said earlier, we're in the middle of a series called For the City, and today we are kind of looking at uh, how sex and sexuality can actually be stewarded or, or handled in a way um, that is a blessing to our city. And I believe kind of my, my thesis for this whole thing is that we would understand that it is possible. It is possible to handle sex and sexuality in a way that is honoring to God, that is a blessing to our city, and deeply fulfilling to us as people. Now, um, you know, this conversation is touchy for a lot of reasons. You know, I think I'm a parent. I've been a parent for about eight years now. I have three kids, and I talk to a lot of parents. And I think I can safely say that across the board, there is one conversation that every parent is apprehensive or nervous about with their kids. It's the conversation about sex. It's like, man, what if I say something wrong? You know, I feel nervous. It feels like it's going to be awkward. And I think most of us feel that way because, you know, we remember the conversation with our parents. Like, all of us have been there or maybe not been there and felt the, the lack and the confusion that's come with that, you know, of just this, there, there's something about, you know, Talking about sex and our parents, they kind of seem to go together like oil and water. It's not something that we seek to kind of bring together that often. And for many of you, you may be feeling the same way this morning about what's happening right now. It's like you come in here and you're not used to your pastor getting up and talking about sex. The idea of your pastor standing up and saying words like orgasm or masturbation or sexual intercourse, it's like, oh my goodness, this is awkward. This is so uncomfortable, you know, and it's like, here's the thing though, most of us have never been like intentionally discipled into how we handle this part of our lives in a God-honoring way. Uh, we've been taught by our friends. Uh, we've been taught by the magazines at our cousin's house when we were growing up. Uh, we've been hurt and shaped by our wounds. We've been taught by our experiences but many of us have never been intentionally discipled into understanding this. And here's what I know. I know that for some of you, even just right now as I intro this, this is, it's uncomfortable, potentially even painful, and you're sweating a little bit. And I just want just to tell you, like, man, I, I want to honor you today, and I want to honor God today. 
And I think the Spirit will encourage us as we press into him that this is not gonna be a moment of shame and guilt heaping on you. And I hope, I hope you feel that, that you will encounter the grace of Jesus today. You know, I stand up before you, yes, as your pastor, but not just as a pastor. I stand up here as a marriage therapist who sat with many couples and many individuals dealing with the weight of sexual brokenness and pain and woundedness. I stand up here as a pastor and a therapist, but also stand up here as just a husband. I stand up here as a dad. I also stand up here as, as a, just a guy, you know, a guy that remembers. I remember being a teenager in church and being told, hey, don't have sex. Don't have sex, stay pure. But then all the questions that kind of bubble up in my mind, well, I can't have sex, but you know, can I do this? Like, what, how, how far is too far? Like, where's the gray area, God? What's okay, what's not? Like, I've been there, I remember, I remember. And so I stand up here really just as a guy, a brother in Christ, trying to figure out what we do with God's word. And I wanna give you a heads up, I am gonna talk longer today. Some of you are really disappointed right now, but it's gonna be a longer conversation. The good news is, Titans played in England today, so it's not like there's a game to go catch, you know, there's no traffic to fight to get to a restaurant, you know, so um, I'm going to talk longer. I just want to ask you to stay with me, stay with me, uh, 45 minutes or so, you know, I promise, um, I promise we will get through this, and I hope that it will be beneficial for you. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start by giving a kind of a lay of the land. Uh, understanding the cultural landscape around us when it comes to sexuality. And then I want to look at the biblical invitation to what the Bible has to say about sexual authenticity. And then uh, finally, I want to just kind of look at the way forward. How do we get there? You know, before we can jump into what the Bible says about sexuality and what it teaches on sex, we have to take a survey of where our culture finds itself sexually because all of us, whether we know it or not or whether we like it or not, we have been shaped by the culture around us. It's in the air we breathe. You know, the values, the beliefs, the pursuits of our culture often begin to form a lens through which we view this word. And without realizing it, we will come to the word and it feels like we're, it just feels like another language because we see it through this lens of the culture around us. So kind of what I want to do is I want us to look at kind of under the water, what's kind of been going on in our culture, but then I want us to see what's out in plain view as well, okay? And there's two primary things that are kind of beneath the surface that have been shaping us and our culture that have influenced the external expression of sexuality. And these two simple things are the, the age of authenticity and kind of this separation of body and personhood. Now, let me tell you what I mean by both of these because this sounds rather philosophical. You know, uh, the age of authenticity. It's basically that we live in this culture where we are told that the number one pursuit of your life is coming to know the truest sense of you, the most authentic sense of who you are. You know, there's a mantra to this culture that all of us have heard that all of us know, and it goes something like this. You could probably fill in the blank. And whatever you do, whenever you're making decisions, the most important thing is that you be true to yourself, right? We all, we've all heard this. We've been shaped by it. And the reality is there are some good things involved in that, like, that, like the ability to be honest with yourself and to be vulnerable and not, not let your, your, what people think about you be the thing that guides you. There's some good stuff, but there's some dangerous stuff in that as well. We're gonna see how some of that plays out. You know, this search for the authentic self is connected to our relational sense of being as well, that we are, we are told and kind of encouraged to seek our authentic sense of self. And part of that is finding your one true soulmate who complements or jives perfectly with whatever the truest version of yourself really is. And that includes finding the most authentic expression of yourself sexually. 
That to be a truly fulfilled human being, the narrative says, means that you have discovered who you are sexually and you are able and free to live out that sexual expression however you want to. Now, there's this other thing under the surface. It's not just that we live in the age of authenticity, but there's this, this separation of body and personhood. I'll tell you what, what I'm talking about there. Now, everybody's had middle school science class. Uh, almost everybody probably knows who this guy Charles Darwin is and, and the theory that he postulated about evolutionary, uh, the development uh, of the natural world. And, uh, you know, whether you like Charles Darwin or what you think about evolutionary theory is irregardless. The impacts of his theory are undeniable, even far beyond the realms of science. You see, what Darwin kind of postulated is this, that there's not really any purpose in what you see in the design of the natural world. In fact, there is no design. Only the results of a natural process of evolution that have unfolded over the course of millennia for the purpose of survival. And so the idea here, I love, there's a woman named Nancy Piercy, and she kind of sums it up really well in her book, Love Thy Body. She says, listen, uh, after Darwin's theory, if nature does not reveal God's will, then it is a morally neutral realm where humans impose their will. And because the human body is part of nature, it has become raw material to be manipulated and controlled to serve the human agenda like any other resource. See, in this way of thinking, our bodies are not connected to any deeper purpose. And if this happens, it goes without saying that our bodies have very little or any impact on our truest understanding of who we are as selves. Our bodies are separated from our true expression of personhood. Now, when this separation of body from personhood is overlapped with the age of authenticity, it has radical implications for sex, relationships, and sexuality. You know, our most authentic expression of sexuality no longer has to be connected to our physical bodies. Only what is truest about us as persons is what matters. That is what gives you meaning, what gives you pleasure, what gives you joy. If the body is something to be leveraged for the purpose of personal pleasure or fulfillment, then the purpose of sex is completely up for grabs. Sex can be purely physical. It can be totally detached from love and connection and emotional intimacy. And this is what we see playing out in the culture around us. You know, it's, it's interesting, there was a video that was put out by Children's Television Workshop, which is a widely used resource in sex education classes in public school systems across our country. And they define sexual relations in this video as something done by two adults to give each other pleasure. That's it. That's how they define sexuality. No mention of marriage, no mention of family, no mention of relationship, commitment, or even love. Again, Nancy Piercy, she talks about what's happening on university campuses when this is kind of the environment. She says this, she says, universities will invite sex toy companies on campus to display their wares. At Yale University Sex Week, porn stars have been invited in as speakers and students are invited to attend workshops on topics such as sadomasochism, incest, and bestiality. One student summed it up this way. She said, the message is clear. Don't be boring. Be like porn stars. But you see, sex education programs do nothing to teach how to form and maintain a relationship. No, it's all about technique. It is a manual and a how-to guide. One UCLA psychiatrist is really fascinating. She was relaying just countless conversations she's had with students that have come to her over this issue of their sexuality. 
She described in particular one young freshman girl who came to see her. She was in a deep depression after her first sexual encounter in which the boy dropped her soon after. And she said this, she said, why doctor? Why do they tell you how to protect your body from herpes and from pregnancy, but they don't tell you what it does to your heart? You see, when the body has been detached from personhood in the pursuit of your authentic self, then sex education becomes simply a how-to manual of how to be safe and how to achieve the perfect climax. That is what it's boiled down to. Sex is entirely about an orgasmic, pleasurable experience and finding what is right for you. And as we'll see shortly, thanks to the hookup culture, that all of this should actually be done in a way that is detached from emotional connections, that when you attach that to emotional connections, it can actually ruin the whole thing for you. That's what the narrative describes. Now, here's the thing. The result of all of this under the water, the above the water stuff that's shaping us is we, have, we are now existing in a culture that is relationally confused and hypersexualized. Relationally confused, but hypersexualized. And the relational confusion, it goes something that's like, you know, intimate relationships are looked to still as a primary source of happiness and self actualization, but they're measured in terms of personal gratification only. Am I getting what I need from this relationship? Does it make me happy? Does it further my purpose and my sense of self? Does the, do the benefits to me outweigh the costs? And there's this assumption that a relationship, yeah, could last until death, but only as long as it fulfills my truest self. And as long as we think there might be somebody else out there who more authentically matches me, then it's like we're constantly playing this game of fear of missing out because that more perfect person might come along. But it's not just relationally confused, it's also hypersexualized. And, you know, I don't know if you may think I'm being, um, you know, <laughs> just exaggerating a bit because I'm a pastor and that's what I do, but we're gonna look at a few things to help us see the hypersexualized nature of our culture and some of the stats. You know, one of the things that exists in our culture is just this thing called the hookup culture. I mean, many of you, you know about this, many of us know about it, you know, and the, the, uh, I'm gonna quote an article that was written 14 years ago. An article that was written in the New York Times called Friends, Friends with Benefits and the Benefits of the Local Mall. And uh, this was a look at the hookup culture present in high schools 14 years ago, a time when many of you were in high school, and you will probably, you'll, you'll know this, like it sounds so familiar, right? But in the article, uh, a 14 and 15-year-old boys and girls uh, try to help the author understand what a hookup is and what hookup culture is. One young girl says, oh, hooking up can be defined as anything from kissing to oral sex all the way to sexual intercourse but it's all detached from any social connection. In fact, as one 14-year-old girl describes a guy that she hooks up with, the author says, well, so do you think you'll date him? And she says, well, I don't know, maybe. It's just that guys can get so annoying when you start dating them. And then there's a 15-year-old boy that immediately chimes in and says the same thing. He goes, yeah, it's true. Hooking up is so much easier than having to try to have relationship." You know, hookup culture did not just stay in the realm of 14 and 15 year old high school students. No, it was further revolutionized very recently by the invention of dating or hookup apps, apps like Tinder, OkCupid, okay, Bumble, Hinge. And there was an article in 2015 in the magazine Vanity Fair, and the article is called Tinder and Hookup Culture Promotion. And in that culture, in that article, the author lays out in no uncertain terms what the dating landscape looks and feels like today. I'm just going to read you some quotes from this article. Uh, these are all quotes of people interviewed in the article one. This first one is a 25-year-old guy. He says, you know, it's instant gratification. 
He's talking about using Tinder to find women. He says, instant gratification and a validation of your own attractiveness by just like swiping your thumb on an app. You see some pretty girl and you swipe and it's like, oh yeah, she thinks you're attractive too. And so it's really addicting. John, a 26-year-old marketing executive in New York says this, sex has become so easy. I can go on my phone right now and no doubt I can find someone I can have sex with this evening, probably before midnight. Two female seniors from Boston College described it this way. They said, guys from our experience aren't really looking for girlfriends. They're just looking for hit it and quit it on Tinder. They start out with send me nudes or they say something like, I'm looking for something quick within the next 20 or 20, 10 or 20 minutes. Are you available? Okay, you're a mile away. Tell me your location. It's straight efficiency. One man says this, it's like ordering something on Amazon, but you're ordering a person. When questioned why they play the game, one young woman says, you know, if you say anything about how detached it all is from intimacy, you get looked at as if you missed the memo on third wave feminism. Yet a few women admit that they use these dating apps to get free meals, one of them calling it dating food stamps. <laughs> you know, to me, the, to me, the most poignant part of the article came when the author began to wrestle with some of the implications of all of this. This is what she says at the end of the article. She says, what happens after you've come of age in the age of Tinder? Will people ever be satisfied with a sexual or even emotional commitment to just one person? And does that matter? Can men and women ever find true intimacy in a world where communication is mediated by screens? Or can we find trust when we know that their partner has an array of other easily accessible options? And so the hookup culture promotes this idea that, hey, do, do what you need to. It can be detached from emotional connection. In fact, that will help you find your most authentic and truest sexual self. But it's not just hookup culture. You know, there was this other revolution that's been going for several decades now, the pornography revolution. And pornography is probably the most extreme version of depersonalized sex. You know, and a, a lot of the secular world kind of argues, hey, pornography, is, is it moral? Is it immoral? Does it matter? In 2016, there was an article in the Washington Post in which the writer says, hey, it doesn't matter, immoral or moral. What we need to know is that this is a public health crisis. She says this, she says, in 2013, porn sites got more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. <laughs> and one of the largest free porn sites in the world streamed six times the bandwidth of Hulu. Another major free porn site in 2015, they boasted that they had received 21.2 billion visits and streamed 75 gigs of data a second which translates into enough porn to fill the storage of 175 million 16 gigabyte iPhones. 175 million of these phones filled with nothing but pornographic content. And the question is, okay, so what is the content? What are we, what are we talking about here? You know, for, for many, we think, oh yeah, pornography, we, we conjure up images of, you know, like a, a picture, a static picture or centerfold of a naked woman in a cornfield or something. And that's not exactly what people are looking up no, the content is different. In a content analysis of the best-selling and most-rented porn films, researchers found that 88% of analyzed scenes contained physical aggression, usually towards women. Verbal aggression occurred in 49% of those scenes, most often in the form of calling a woman a, I'll let you fill in the blank, choose your uh, derogatory term. <laughs> 
Researchers found that, listen to this, 83% of U.S. college men reported seeing mainstream pornography and that those who did were more likely to say that they would commit rape or sexual assault if they knew they wouldn't be caught than the men who hadn't seen porn in the last 12 months. The first longitudinal study on porn found that men who start watching porn after they marry are twice as likely to divorce. But this is not just a problem with men anymore. Like, this is not a man problem. There's another recent study from 2017 that involved 3,000 participants, and it found that one in three women reported watching porn once a week, and another third reported watching it a few times a month. This equals two-thirds of those surveyed, two-thirds of the women surveyed, watching porn a few times a month or more. Now, this pornography revolution, it it is all over, and it affects so many in our culture, and I know it's not just out there. It's in here, right? I've talked to so many of you. This is, this is your struggle. This is your battle. This is the thing you're fighting against. And it's waging war against our souls. And here's what's crazy is that in our culture, it just feels normal. This being flooded with pornography feels kind of normal. But you know, this is so new to humanity. I mean, this is, this is new. This is not something that is old or normal. So all of this kind of working together, relationally confused, hyper-sexualized, hookup culture, pornography revolution, not to mention all the things you see in mainstream media, it is just, it's messed with us. And the result is a self-defeating cycle relationally that goes something like this. This is kind of my account of what this feels like. That the ultimate goal is to find your truth and to be true to yourself. Your true authentic self cannot be limited by such base factors as your physical body, but instead is made up of the beliefs and the morality that resonate most with who you truly are. So the things that feel most true to you are what matter, and no one else can tell you what that is. Part of fulfilling your authentic self is finding that perfect soulmate who always satisfies your needs, both sexual and otherwise. And the other part of that search for authenticity is finding what fulfills your authentic sexual self. And the message is that to discover that part of yourself, much exploration is needed. So pornography and masturbation are looked at as educational experiences in furthering my true authentic self. And because the act of sex has been divorced from your emotions or your true self, it's possible and even advised in some cases to explore your authentic sexual expressions with as many people as possible until you find not only your expression, but also the one true soulmate with whom that sexual expression is most compatible. However, and this is the however, once that person is found, what we find is that we're unable to give of ourselves selflessly because we've been formed by a culture that says sexuality is about what's right for me. And so when it's no longer fulfilling, it's time to move on and the cycle continues. And it is into this culture that the church for too long has simply just tried to say, don't have sex. Don't have sex till you get married. Stay pure. Don't do it. And so many followers of Jesus sit in rooms like this one and they just hear that message of don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And what we're, we feel this, this kind of tear inside of us because we go, but this, is, this feels like such a natural urge. And the culture, it's like, oh, it says it's okay, but over here I'm hearing don't do it. And it produces this tension within us. And the culture, what they hear when this is our stance is they hear, listen, the church thinks that sexuality is shameful. It is guilt-inducing. 
that God does not care about us being personally fulfilled, that God doesn't give a rip. Or it goes something like this, hey, if God really is as good as you say he is, and then if he really loves me, then he wants me to be happy and sexual fulfillment is part of my happiness. Therefore, God would never ask me not to have sex or to be sexually involved with someone that I love. See, what our, what our city needs, what our city needs is a better vision for sex and sexuality. And I believe, Ethos, that God has put us in our city to be a light into a dark place. Jesus looks at us. He says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine. Let it shine. But here's the reality. We as a church, we need a bigger and more robust and healthier framework for understanding our sexuality and how to steward it. And so what is the alternative? What is the biblical view of sexuality? Well, to start with, I think we have to distinguish between what most of us think of as sex and what I'm going to call sexuality. You know, when most of us, when we hear the word sex or we hear sexual or sexuality, sometimes even when we hear the word intimacy, what, what we immediately think of is an act of sexual intercourse or other erotic acts that are meant to bring pleasure. But our sexuality is so much bigger and so much more beautiful than just that. You see, our sexuality is found in the story of God's word all the way back at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter one, as, as you read about this poetic rendering of the creation account, the writer says that, that God created humanity in his image, male and female, he created them. That it was in chapter two, he'll go on to say that it was not good for man to be alone. So God created woman. You see, there was this, there was this complementarity in their maleness and their femaleness. Now, don't get lost on that. I'm not talking about hierarchy or any of that right now. What I'm saying is God created man and woman. And there was this intention, intended design of complementarity for one man and one woman to come together in an act of intimacy. That at the end of chapter two, you find this beautiful picture where Adam and Eve, male and female, are in the garden and they are naked and they feel no shame. Shame was never meant to be a part of the equation in our sexuality. That Adam and Eve at the beginning were naked, attracted to each other, and it was beautiful and there was no shame connected to it. Ultimately, you see authentic biblical sexuality is a longing for connection, for oneness, for intimacy and relationship. That is what sexuality is. And here's what's amazing is that sexuality, the way God designed it, it is physical, it is emotional, and it is spiritual. We need a big picture of sexuality. It is physical, it is emotional, and it is spiritual. I'm going to talk through each one of those, physicality of it, the emotional connection to it, and the spiritual connection. And because we are integrated beings, as I talk through the physical nature, the emotional and the spiritual, it's going to feel like those things are overlapping. And it sometimes will be unclear which one we are actually talking about. That is not a coincidence. You see, our emotions are deeply intertwined with our physical being, which is deeply intertwined with our spiritual being, and our sexuality touches all of it. And so we start with this idea that our sexuality is physical. This is the most obvious to us, right? It is a physical act it involves our bodies, and this is not something to be ashamed of, that God created our bodies, and he said it was very good that Adam and Eve were physically naked, and they felt no shame. 
There was a sexual attraction. But here's the thing about sexual attraction is that it is not just about getting off. No, sexual attraction is actually about being drawn to someone for God's glory and for their benefit. That our bodies are involved in this, not detached from this. And this is why Paul spends so much time in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he says, listen, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord. He says, listen, the Lord raised the body of Jesus. And in the end, you will be raised. And he says, your body is a part of the body of Jesus. It is a physical experience. Sexuality is physical. And because it is physical, one of the aspects that God kind of just put into that sexual attraction and longing is that it leads to the act of sex, that our sexuality and the act of sex are not the same thing. But no, our sexuality can lead to the act of sex between a man and a woman who have covenanted with one another. And by God's design, it is physically pleasurable. Uh, This is is, is what's amazing. You know, what happens in the brain uh, because of sexual stimulation is actually the, the the release of this chemical called dopamine into the pleasure center of the brain. And that God designed this to be pleasurable, that the same chemical that that kind of triggers the brain when it is triggered in unhealthy ways, like through using heroin or smoking pot or or using cocaine, all of those things trigger the pleasure center of the brain. There's a dopamine release in the act of sex. And it was meant to be pleasurable. But here's the thing about our sexuality is that all of it was modeled after the character of Jesus. Now, that feels weird to say. Sex is pleasurable, modeled after the character of Jesus. But here's what Jesus did. Jesus laid his own self-interest aside always for the sake of the other. And that sex was not meant to be this thing where I chase after a hit like someone who needs a hit from a drug. But instead, I'm laying down my life for the sake of another. This is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you keep reading, Paul's going to start talking to married couples. And he says, listen, verse 2, uh, because since, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. In verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. What Paul is saying is, listen, in marriage, it's not about getting what you want, but giving what your spouse needs. It is about an act of giving. That physical pleasure was meant to be laying down your life to lift up the other. So you see, sex is physical, and when it's carried out in this way, no one gets trampled on, no one gets hurt, everyone gets honored, and sex is physical. But it's not just physical. It is emotional. Sex is deeply emotional. You cannot disconnect it from emotions. And, uh, you know, here's the thing. This is actually scientific. It overlaps with the physical piece. It's, you know, dopamine is not the only thing released in your brain during a sexual encounter. No, it's crazy. There's these hormones that are released in the brain. Two of them uh, have known for a long time, there's one hormone called oxytocin. And doctors have known for a long time that that when a a mother breastfeeds her infant, that there are mass amounts of oxytocin released in her brain and in the baby's brain, and that it's sometimes called the attachment hormone because it it pushes the two people whose brains are experiencing that to want to draw near to one another to be attached. You can imagine the surprise when scientists discovered that oxytocin is actually released in huge amounts in the act of sexual intercourse. That even when we want a simple noncommittal hookup, Our bodies sometimes betray us a little bit, and we walk away with a longing for connection, for attachment. It's why sometimes in a relationship that hasn't felt all that serious up until the point of sexual intercourse suddenly feels a lot more serious. 
It's because your brain is releasing hormones for attachment. The same thing, another chemical or hormone is one called vasopressin. Sometimes it's called the monogamy gene because it, 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 is the, it is the, or the monogamy hormone because it is the hormone that causes men to want to care for their offspring and for men to care for their spouses. And what I want us to see in this is that what we're discovering about the way the brain works in connection to our sexuality is exactly in line with what the Bible tells us. And so Paul talks about when a man and woman come together, they become one flesh. He is just recalling the biblical narrative in Genesis. You see, God designed male and female to come together to experience a oneness, a union, an intimacy, and the brain is desired to try to facilitate that, to keep us together. You see, our sexuality is deeply physical, it is deeply emotional, and it is about intimate connection with other people, with our spouses, one man and one woman. But it is not just physical or emotional, it is also spiritual. You know, uh, this is probably the one that is most uncomfortable to Christians because we have grown so used to the idea of sexuality being something that the way the culture defines it. And so the idea of the culture's understanding of sexuality having anything to do with our spiritual pursuit of Jesus just feels kind of weird. The problem is, is that when you read through the Bible over and over again, this is kind of the language that it used all through the Old Testament. It's no mistake that God describes himself as husband and he talks about Israel as being his bride. You get to the New Testament and Jesus is described as the groom and the church is described as the bride. Because you see, all of the human story from the very beginning of creation until the end of Revelation, it is pointing us towards this moment where no longer will we be fragmented and separated but no, we will know oneness, connection, and intimacy with our creator in a way that we've never known before. And our sexuality is part of what points us to that. And you see, God designed it in the context of marriage because see, God covenants with his people. You read through the story of Israel and you're like, man, why did God keep staying faithful to Israel when they kept running after other gods? Because God realized it was a covenant. He was going to give himself come what may. And he uses marriage language to describe that. And he says, it is in the context of marriage, of a covenant where it is unconditional, where I know I have given myself to my spouse, come what may. And it creates this bond, this connection where full sexual expression is able to be free. Where no longer do we have to be naked and be ashamed, but now we can be naked and feel no shame because I know the other person is not going anywhere. And this is the way God designed it. And it's amazing when it starts to overlap with our spirituality because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul seems to go from talking about sexual immorality to talking about being united with Christ. He says, you know, you don't, you don't join your body with a prostitute because you are members of Christ's body. Those of you who are one with the Lord are one with him in spirit. But then he'll say your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, the thing about sexuality is it is so much more robust and big than the narrative of our culture wants us to believe it is deeply physical deeply emotional, and deeply spiritual. Now, here's the thing. Why, why does all this matter? What does it mean for sex to be physical, emotional, spiritual, for us to want to live into that beautiful picture of it? You know, I think one of the reasons it really matters is that there is this really damaging lie that is pervasive in our culture. I felt it as a teenager in the church. I hear it today. I've felt it as a married man. 
And this lie is particularly damaging to those of you who are single, to those of you who feel called to singleness, to those of you who experience same-sex attraction, but you long to honor God with your sexuality. And the lie goes something like this, that you cannot be fulfilled as a human being without having sex. It is not true. It is not true. The sexual gratification is not the pinnacle of human fulfillment. The pinnacle of human fulfillment is intimacy, primarily with our creator. And it is the direction that all of creation is heading. That sex is a lousy reason to get married. If the only reason you want to marry the person you're with is so that you can justify having sex with them. And you, you need to kind of relook at that and rethink that. Because ultimately, sex is really good. It is beautiful. It is physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual. It is all of these things. But it makes a lousy idol. And if you bow down at the feet of sexuality, you will be disappointed. So the question becomes, why do Christians care so much about sex then? <laughs> why do they care? I think Paul speaks into this in verses 18 to 20. He says, flee from sexual immorality. He says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You see, because sexual immorality, it is the one sin that, that permeates all of who you are, physical, emotional, spiritual, but your body is meant to be leveraged to the glory of God and the benefit of others as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is not a meaningless object intended to be used for your pleasure. The invitation here to flee sexuality, it is actually an unbelievably loving thing. I want you to notice, it doesn't say flee sex. Paul never says flee sex. He says, flee sexual immorality. And this is a loving invitation. I think about if I walked in on my eight-year-old and he was watching pornography, I would do everything within my power to free him from the harmful effects of that act that he was engaging in. And so when God says flee sexual immorality, it's because he loves you. He knows how he made you. He knows how he designed you. You see, our, our sexuality, including the act of sex, is God-designed. It is good, it is beautiful, it is meaningful. It is a picture of married couples giving of themselves one to another. In chapter seven, he keeps saying, hey, don't deprive your spouse, like give for their sake. Repeatedly, across generations, it's no accident that studies continue to show that the people with the most satisfied with their sex lives, not the most fulfilled humans, but are most satisfied with their sex lives, are married monogamous couples. Because it takes place in this unconditional relating kind of environment. So because sex involves all of us and requires vulnerability, it is most fulfilling in that context. And so Jesus invites us to put on display the beauty of his divine sexuality in our city for the redemption of our city and to the glory of God. Now, how do we get there? Because I know that right here within these walls, there are so many of us that are, all these narratives compete with one another. There are experiences, painful experiences, hurtful things that we're currently engaged in. How do we get to this picture of what Jesus and the Bible hold out for us. The first part is this. This is where we're gonna to start to land the plane, so stay with me. It starts with accepting the grace of Jesus. We accept the grace of Jesus. Some of you may be sitting here and you're going, man, you, don't, you have no idea what it's been like for me. You don't know what I did last night, what I did last week, what I've been doing for the last 10 years, and it feels hopeless for you. There's hope 
there is healing, there is forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus didn't say, hey, clean yourself up, get yourself together, and then you can come to me. Jesus said, no, I'm gonna meet you right where you are, and while you are still in that place of pain, brokenness, and sin, I'm gonna die on a cross and be raised to life so that you can have hope. And so the starting place is accept the freely given gift of the grace of Jesus. But the second part comes with it. It says, surrender your will to his will. Surrender what feels best to you to what he knows is best. The Proverbs writer will say it this way, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him and he will direct your paths. And so we accept the grace of Jesus that there is hope no matter where you've been or what you've been through. And then we submit our will to Jesus and we trust in his. Third, we ask the right questions. I'm just convinced we've got to stop asking the question, what's right, what's wrong, what's a sin, what's not, how far is too far, how much can I do and get away with it? All of these questions kind of reveal that our truest longing for our sexuality is still physical sexual gratification instead of oneness with our creator. I think this is what Paul's talking about in verses 12, where he says, hey, everything is permissible. He says, but not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible. He says, yeah, but don't be mastered by anything because you see what we do with our sexuality has an impact on us. And so the question that we ask is not what's sin, what's not sin, but instead, how is this shaping me? How is it forming me? Is it continuing to mold me into the likeness of Jesus as a selfless uh, person willing to lay down my life? Or is it shaping me in another way? And you can go through the whole list of sexual expression. And if you're honest, you, we've got to be honest with ourselves when we ask that question. And premarital sex, is that, how's that shaping me? Well, it is conditioning my brain to having sex with a person outside of a covenant. It is conditioning me to understand that sex is a thing that can take place between any two people who just love one another, even in the context of a conditional relationship. Are you thinking about masturbation? How does that shape me in looking at porn? C.S. Lewis has this incredible quote on masturbation. We don't really think of C.S. Lewis and masturbation in the same sentence. I know, that's kind of weird. But he has this incredible, incredible quote. I wish I could read the whole thing to you, but I know it's kind of long. But ultimately what he says is, listen, you know, the main work of life with Jesus is to come out of ourselves, out of the little dark prison we're born in for the sake of other people. He says, masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which slow down the process of becoming others focused. The danger in it, though, is that of coming to love the prison, coming to love self-expression over loving others in selfless Jesus love. You know, all, everything we do sexually shapes us. So the question is, how is it forming you? How is it shaping me? And is that in line with the character of Jesus? And so we, we accept the grace of Jesus. We submit our will to his. We ask the question, how is it shaping me? And finally, we embrace wisdom versus willpower. So often, this conversation about sexual purity and wholeness and beauty, it is all wrapped up in this idea of, hey, I've been convicted, I need to do better, and so I'm gonna iron will myself with self-control not to do the things that I used to do. But here's the thing. Sexual urges are powerful because they were designed to be, and I can assure you that if you try to rely on willpower alone, you will fail. Willpower is not enough. We need wisdom. We need wisdom. Willpower will not get you out of that moment when you've laid on the couch for two hours with your boyfriend or girlfriend watching Netflix, and then you're both turned on, and you know you want to keep doing, oh, gotta have willpower. It's not gonna get you out. 
your willpower will run out. Willpower will not get you through that moment where it's 1 a.m. and you wake up and you're lonely and you know your phone is sitting by the bed or you know your computer is nearby. Willpower will not get you out. You need something more. We need wisdom. And I believe wisdom comes with boundaries and with community. Boundaries and community. I could talk about this for a long time. I'm not going to because I know it's already, we're already going really long, but boundaries. Boundaries just mean this. Hey, it's good to pray. Pray about this, but make it practical. Don't have the computer in your room overnight. Put it somewhere else in the house. If you're struggling with, with porn, get the filter. Get some accountability software. That's wisdom. Those are boundaries. If you're struggling with, with sleeping with the person that you're with, then don't put yourself in situations where you have to make a decision in the moment. I mean, people thought we were crazy, but my wife and I, we had boundaries. When we were dating, I was not allowed in her apartment if her roommates weren't home. That was a boundary we put on ourselves because we knew our willpower would be lacking. Uh, she wasn't allowed to be in my room with the door closed if my roommates weren't home. And if they came home, they were allowed to knock on the door because we knew we needed wisdom, not just willpower. The other part of this is doing it in community. You need boundaries and you need community. Many of you have been walking through a struggle with sexual pain, sexual addiction, sexual promiscuity, and you've been trying to do it on your own. This is a place where we come to Jesus all on a level playing field and there's no shame. We need each other. So if you've been doing it alone, share it with somebody else. Get someone to pray for you. Get someone to walk with you through it. If you don't know anyone that can do that, come talk to us at the Respond banner. Shoot us an email. Let us know. We are in this together as the body of Jesus. And so together as the people of Jesus, we put the beauty of God on display through our sexuality. We do this by accepting his grace, submitting our will to his, asking the right questions, and letting wisdom, not willpower, be the thing that leads us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm gonna pray for us, and we're gonna take communion. Jesus is here in our midst, and no matter where you are, where you're coming from, he loves you. You come to the table of grace, and you receive all that he has for you. Pray with one another. If you need prayers, we'll have men and women over here. We love to pray with you, and we're gonna finish out our time just worshiping and inviting Jesus to do whatever he wants in our lives. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Man, I thank you for... Hey, your wisdom, Lord, your creativity, your beauty that you have woven all through creation and through us as your children. Man, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit as we try to navigate a tough culture? Would you help us not just to survive it, Lord, but would you help us to truly be a source of blessing to the culture around us? May we be light, for light is needed. Come, Lord, come as we commune with you. In the name of Jesus, amen.